Welcome to Encounter. We want nothing more than to help you find and follow Jesus. If you're a college student in Central Illinois, join us Monday nights, ISU's campus. We'd love to see you there. I read this article this week, uh, probably just four-ish days ago, this came out in Psychology Today. Okay, this is a study that there's a group at Harvard that puts on every year. This isn't a Christian magazine. It wasn't put on by Christian researchers, but they're talking about the decline of well-being in young adults. Let me see what I grabbed from the article here. Harvard has a human flourishing program. So they use questionnaires, and they have for a long time, to gauge and measure, I'm going to read this so I don't get it wrong, well-being in several areas across generations. They call it flourishing assessments. They do them every year. These areas are happiness, health, meaning, character, relationships, and financial stability. Okay, and typically what they see in these studies, apparently, I'm not an expert, but I read one article on it this week, okay? Typically what they see is that younger generations score pretty high. There's a dip for those who are kind of in their middle ages, and we see older, uh, older adults measure high too. So the one big takeaway for the Harvard researchers when they ran this study this year, post-pandemic, was that that's not what they saw. They didn't see high measurements in happiness and satisfaction and meaning and purpose and relationships in your age group. These, the one on the far left is you. We have Gen Z, we have millennials, we have uh, Gen Xers, that's me. We have boomers, that's not me, to be clear, okay? <laughs> and we have uh, this, what they call the silent generation the older ones. And so some of you are like, that's not a shock because I know my own generation and it isn't a shock to you. But when we talk about those areas, let me say them again, happiness, health, meaning, character, relationships, and financial stability, your generation, because that was 18 to 25, that article says is adrift. They're concerned about you. Now, I think I understand why. This isn't a shocker to me. For the last 60 or 70 years, our culture has been drifting more and more toward what we would call secular humanism, okay? And it's just this belief system that there is no such thing as a God, that all of those, those myth traditions are outdated, and as a matter of fact, religion is part of the problem. And so you are not created. As a matter of fact, you are basically a cosmic accident, that you are the result of chaos, that's what's been preached for a very long time in almost every movie that you've watched, a lot of professors that you've listened to already <laughs> this year. That's what they believe and that's what they preach. So what does it do to generation after generation to preach this message where there is no creator, which means you are the product of chance and chaos, which means that in terms of what we have around us on this planet, there's no such thing as, as morality. That's whatever we want it to be, whatever we as the human population determine that it is. This question or meaning, what is meaning? What is beauty? These larger things in life? The answer to that question from a secular humanist perspective would be whatever you make it to be, which is an easy way of saying nothing <laughs> unless you create it. To be very clear, you guys, this is not what Jesus taught. This isn't what I'm preaching to you as I'm leaning on the word to understand our universe and what it looks like. Jesus had a very different way of looking at what this world is and why you were put on it, and he had answers for that. He wasn't grasping in the dark. In the first three weeks, last week, tonight, and next week, Labor Day, 
I wanna zero in on this, the, the greatest commandment. I'm preaching through a greatest series, these things that were the, the greatest. And if you aren't careful, you might think that, that tonight and last week and next week are like kindergarten lessons, okay? Because we're talking on God's love, like his love for us and our love for each other. But I gotta tell you guys, these are the deepest things in the Christian faith. I kid you not. Those of you who've been followers of Jesus for 10 years, 15 years, like for a long time, you grew up in the church, you need what we're talking about more than anybody else because we don't outgrow it. And that's like, I read that, that article in Psychology Today and I was like, this is why we do a fall retreat. This is why we do small groups. This is why we show up on Monday nights because you need each other. You need it. There's a hole in your soul that needs a love for God and a love for each other this year. And we will provide spaces where that happens. So this is not just my call to be like, hey, we want our events to be big, would you show up? No, I think you are going to be spiritually bankrupt come February if you don't pour into the Lord and each other. And so I'm begging you to do that for your own benefit, please. This is what Jesus had to say when he was talking about what it means and why we're put on this planet. We talked, I brought up this verse last week, but we're gonna dive deeper into it. Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all of the demands of the prophets are based on these two commands. You guys, love, love. Love is the purpose that you're put on this planet for. We talked last week about how you are the beloved of God. He cares deeply and desperately for you. And out of that, you have the ability to love him back, to return his love. We said last week, you don't ever get to say I love you to God. It's always I love you too. He always says it first. So it's always just a response back to him. That's the way it works. But let's go one step further. That's the first part of this, is that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I I should probably add this before I move on. There are a lot of different motives to the Christian life. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You can follow Jesus or follow religion or follow God or just decide you have to go to religious structures. You can do that out of fear. See the quad preachers out this week? They were out, right? Okay, preaching fear, for sure, without question. Hoping to scare you of your sins in a way to motivate you religiously. Okay, can I tell you this? Fear is a good motivator. If you're, if you're scared of something, it will motivate you to do something for a short period of time. That isn't our motive in the Christian life. Okay, love is our motive. Obligation is a motive. Some of you are like, I went to church, our family was in church like twice a week since I was two and you just have this sense of obligation. That's what we do, I owe it to my family or I owe it to God. He seems to want me to be present, so I guess I'll show up. Obligation will get you there, but that is not the motive of the Christian life, and it's already tasted hollow to you if that's you. There are all kinds of others, you guys. That isn't my message tonight. My message tonight is the motive of the Christian life is love, the love of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 14, the love of Christ compels us, Paul says. The love of Christ compels me, it redirects me, it changes me, it's my motive in the Christian life. Well, let's get to the second part of this. We're supposed to love God, because our theme for the whole year, though, you're not gonna hear us talk about this over and over and over again, but our theme for the whole year is deep and wide. 
And it just comes out of this vertical relationship of I'm gonna love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what it means to have a vertical relationship with him. And I'm gonna love my neighbor as myself. So that's the horizontal relationship. And so we grow deep, both personally and as a ministry. We grow deep, we send our roots down into the Lord, we study the word, we know who he is. And we grow wide. You guys, we don't have many seats left on the floor here. You invite people, we're gonna have to put them in the balcony. That's an okay problem, all right? We talked last week where it's like, we're gonna have to figure out more speakers and stuff if we do that. We'll do that, okay? Invite people into this room, we'll grow wide. The influence of Jesus Christ will be wide on this campus this year. I'm excited for that. I should have said this earlier, but even as you go out to Festival ISU and when you're at Heartland and Wesleyan and you're doing all your Welcome Week stuff, look at places with new eyes. Like we have a knitting club at ISU, okay? Needles of Fury, that's their, that's their RSO name. Oh, it's amazing, okay? Join the knitting club out of a love for Jesus and the desire to meet people this year and share the love of Jesus with them. You don't have to walk in with an agenda. You don't have to beat them up with your Bible. Walk in with the purpose of loving them and enjoying knitting together, okay? And I promise whatever your interest is, there will be a table on the quad, but walk in with those eyes. God, how do I love other people in your name this year? Well, I want to take us to an interesting extra passage that talks about this because we've been looking at this particular passage that Matthew talks about, but there's another moment that Luke gives us with Jesus that takes this a step further. It's an interaction and a story that we have where Jesus goes further into what it means to love our neighbor. So let's read that tonight. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Let me pause the text for just a second. I want you to notice his purpose, okay? He's coming in to test Jesus, and he's one of the religious elites. I want you to think, like, if you could combine a lawyer and a priest, it's this guy, right? He knows his stuff, and he knows that he knows his stuff. So he stands up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied with a question. What does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? It's kind of like if you're trying to test somebody, this is an unsatisfying answer. Jesus like, what do you think? So the guy replies, his testing isn't working very well. The man answered, "Uh, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, it's possible that he had sat in on Jesus' teaching already and had heard Jesus say this and was trying, so he may even be parroting what Jesus had already said in this moment. But regardless, this is what comes out of the, the lawyer's mouth here. Love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him. Do this and you'll live. Again, pretty unsatisfying test so far. The man wanted to justify his actions. In other words, he's like, this isn't working out very well. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Okay, you gotta be careful when you ask Jesus questions because now Jesus responds. And Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant 
And your, if you're reading along in your own translation, it might say a Levite, which would have been a temple assistant back in the day. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. So these two religious workers who were really highly esteemed in Jewish culture, they were like the upper echelon of the religious class. These are the first two that Jesus is talking about. Both passed this poor guy by. And then a despised Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. And then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three, so Jesus is in teaching mode. You understand, like, this is a real story about Jesus. And in the midst of that, he's giving a teaching parable in the middle of it, sandwiched in, okay? So we go back to Jesus talking to this guy. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits, Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. That's Jesus' story. We're gonna spend the next two weeks, tonight and next week, these are gonna be paired together, the message that I'm teaching next week and this week. And it focuses, we're gonna to focus tonight on who is my neighbor? Because that's the question that this, the religious lawyer guy here asked. Who is my neighbor, Jesus? Who would you say that is? And that's why Jesus launches into this parable to begin with. So I want to, I want to jump into what he's saying and I want us to let that change how we think about who is my neighbor. What does it mean to love the people who are in my proximity? And how do I do that? And what in the world is Jesus even trying to attack here and what he gets at? So, so let's talk first about the asker. Okay, two different things. I pointed him out in real time. He comes to put him to the test and he also wants to justify him, okay? Notice in this that Jesus in the beginning doesn't even really feel the need to jump in and debate this guy. Guy's like, Jesus, what do you think about this? What do you think? What do you think? Jesus puts it back in his court because I think on the very front end of this, Jesus can sense that there isn't a heart that really wants an answer. There's a heart that wants a debate and Jesus isn't interested in it. When the guy takes one more step forward, Jesus turns it into a teachable moment. And this is not a cute story that he tells you guys. This parable is a sharp knife that he throws at this guy. And it hits him right where it hurts. Intentionally, right where it is supposed to hurt. Now, if you don't know this, let me give you just a little bit of Bible history, okay? If you go back a long way, a thousand years before Jesus, a thousand years before Jesus, all right? You go back to Israel. Israel was divided into two kingdoms. And on the top, what they called Israel, there were 10 different tribes. And on the bottom, that they called Judah, there were two different tribes, the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, okay? And there's all this history that comes into this because there were different nations that came in and attacked and occupied. You had the Assyrians and you had the Babylonians. You have all this different world history that happens during that time. But to give you, in a nutshell, the northern kingdom begins to be unfaithful, begins to get dispersed. And the, the people of Samaria specifically, they start to marry the Assyrians. They start to forget who they worship. They start to erect idols and do all these other things that, that are basically a slap in the face to Jewish culture. So over the period of a thousand years, Samaria began to have this reputation 
as half-breeds. I know that's an ugly word, but that's the way that it would be seen because they weren't. When, it, when I use the word Jewish today, we're talking mostly about like you can convert to Judaism and you could say, oh, I'm Jewish. And then you're talking about religion. But Jew, Jewish, or, or as they prefer to be known, Jews, is also a race of people that are ethnically located, okay? And in the day that I'm talking about here, their political identity and their racial identity and their religious identity was all the same. It was all woven together in one mix, okay? And the Sumerian people, the Samaritans, started unmixing that, marrying into other cultures. And so I need you to hear this. The Jews hated the Samaritans. If you were from Samaria, I want you to look at where, so this is a map of, of where Jesus, uh, like during his lifetime, what this looked like. Samaria is marked in red here. Um, and the, the story that he's telling is the person who's going from Jerusalem down to Jericho. The reason why they say down is because you're going down a mountain. So down isn't south to them. It's down because Jerusalem's up on a mountain, okay? Now, if you have to get from Jerusalem to Nazareth, got to go through Samaria, except the Jews won't. Seriously, culturally during this time, they would walk all the way around across the Jordan River, around Samaria to get to Galilee. That's how much they hated the Samaritans. They didn't even want a chance running into them in their own lands. And so you had a group of people racially, I mean, the amount of racism that's sitting in our text is thick, okay? Jews and Samaritans are oil and water in that culture. So, think about Jesus to a proper Jewish religious scholar making up this story on the spot and this guy saying, wait, 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 who is my neighbor? And Jesus saying, well, why don't I tell you a story? I'll tell you a story about religious guy number one who was a priest. I mean, you couldn't get a more important and high-end religious worker than the priest who took the care of the sacrifices and did all of the Old Testament offerings and all of these things, and the people looked at them as the closest to God. And the temple worker, the second one, they were the Levites. They were the tribe that was set apart to do all the temple work. Again, the religious elites. I mean, every hero this guy has is either a priest or a Levite. And Jesus is like, and then we got character number three, a Samaritan. And the Samaritan bandages this guy's wounds. The Samaritan goes out of his way to help. The Samaritan takes coins out of his own purse. The Samaritan takes him and puts him on his donkey. The Samaritan takes him to an inn. The Samaritan bandages him himself. The Samaritan tells the innkeeper, if there's anything else that he needs, it's on me. It's my debt, not his debt. And then he turns to the guy and says, which one's the neighbor? Did you notice in the text, the guy couldn't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan? He says, the one who had mercy on him. Can't even say it, that the Samaritan was the hero of the story. But that's what Jesus is doing in this moment. He's trying to uncover this bias, this nastiness, this unforgiveness, this cultural hatred that sits in this man's heart. Why? because he wants to help us understand what it means to love our neighbor. That's the sharp knife that Jesus flings back at this guy, and it is a beauty.
It is. Okay, I gotta warn you on this. This is the way that Jesus works. Like I said, you gotta be careful which questions you ask of Jesus sometimes because he will give you an answer. And I believe that what sits at the core of this, I'm gonna get super fancy and theological. You ready for this? I'm gonna teach you some Latin tonight if you're not familiar with it. Because there's a, (laughs) okay, I say the word Latin, and you're like, yes. Repeat after me, imago Dei. One more time, imago Dei. Somewhere, whether you're a note taker or not, write this down. Text it to yourself, write it on your arm. I want you to remember this this week. I don't care about the Latin, but I do care about what sits behind it. All right? This is a phrase that religious scholars use sometimes to talk about who we are as followers of Jesus, and it comes out of Genesis 1, the 27. I put it up there. Good. Genesis 1, 27. And the idea here is, in Genesis 1, 27, it talks about our creation as men and women. It says, male and female, God created us. Okay, so right in the beginning of our creation story, here's what I want you to know. Remember what we talked about at the beginning? That there's a popular cultural belief that you are born out of chaos? Just the chaos and chance of this world? Genesis 1.27 says, nope, you were created by an intelligent mind that knew what it was creating. You were not the product of chance, you are the product of order, a God who loves order and beauty. And you are his workmanship. Ephesians tells us, his masterpiece. That's one thing that Genesis 1 speaks to, but there's a second part, because it's not just that. It says that we're made in his image, that we're like him, that we're like the God who created. We're reflected. And so this Latin phrase, this doesn't appear in scripture, all right? This is not, this isn't Bible language that I'm pouring on you. This is a phrase that scholars tried to grab at afterwards to try to understand this biblical concept. And it just simply means image of God. Imago means image, Dei means God. So image, literally image of God. But the idea here is that baked into you is the image of the creator of the universe. You have that dignity in you, so do I. All of us are walking around bearing the markings of our creator. That means you have value. That means that you matter. It means that you carry that importance. Now, here's here's the next step after that. It also means that every person around you carries the image of God, Imago Dei, with them. So the most unimportant person that you saw today in your eyes bears the mark of the creator of the universe. That homeless person that you pass by that person in class, that person that's really hard to love, all of them matter to God. Why does Jesus tell this story to this man? Because this man carries a burning hatred in his heart. He preaches the love of God. In this moment, he's able to say, Jesus says, what's what's the greatest commandment? Oh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus knows, he's looking at this guy, and he's like, this racist in front of me is preaching to me about loving God with all your heart and loving your neighbor as yourself. And so the moment that that man says, hey, who's my neighbor? Jesus is like, why don't I tell you a story about a Samaritan? Let me put my finger right on that wound for you. A person that you do not believe carries the Imago Dei. So let me ask you tonight, 
Who are you free to hate? Tough question, yeah? Who have you felt free to show unforgiveness to? Who in your world are you here and they're here? Now, some of this stuff isn't fair. Like, I, that's a pretty deep question to ask on week two. I get it. That's kind of rough on my part, okay? And it's rhetorical. Please don't answer out loud. But what I'm asking tonight, what I'm asking tonight is for you to consider for just a moment. Some of this stuff is cultural. You guys, you are, there are people right now who are sitting in focus groups trying to figure out how to make you hate people. Isn't that weird? That's the way that political camps work. If they can motivate you to hate another party enough Okay, then they can monetize it. They can get your vote. They can do all kinds of stuff. So first of all, there's, that's happening all the time in our world where we are being pushed to think about other people a very specific way. But that's intangible, okay? Let me talk tangibly for a moment. There are people in this room you have reasons to hate. There are people in your life where you've come from that you have very good reasons to despise. Like they've done pain to you, you, you've, you carry wounds from them still, whether it's from your family or from a previous job or a coach, or I, whatever that looks like for you. I've got them too. You've got them too. People who have given you reasons. Let me tell you a story. I'm going to have to make it a quick one, this for sake of time tonight, okay, about the worst neighbor I have ever had. And, I, and I'm guessing in this area I've got you beat, okay, but we'll see. When Joe and I first moved to town, uh, here in Bloomington Normal. It was the first time we bought a house. We had rented up until that point because we, we lived in Charleston before. We weren't really sure what that looked like long term. And so we had a great house there, but we rented it. So it wasn't really ours. We could, you know, I love to work on stuff. I could, didn't really have that freedom. When we moved here, we had two little baby boys. Then we bought this place that was kind of out in the country, sort of in a subdivision. And um, and it had a little bit of, like, it had a big yard, so we could do all kinds of stuff there. And I was so excited about it, you guys. My, my two little baby boys had room to run. I was like, I'm going to build them this huge play set. And so it's like, loved this place, okay? We had a neighbor, however, right next to us. Uh, not right immediately there, because we had a big yard. I'm going to change his name to Dave. It's that good of a story, okay? First time I ran into Dave, I didn't see him for a while, a um, couple weeks after we moved in, uh, I was jogging or doing something. I came, I came back late, though. It was like 11 or 12 at night. And, um, but I was like, and I saw him out in his driveway sitting in his truck. And I was like, hey, I get to meet my neighbor. So I come up to him. And this dude is so baked that we couldn't even hold a conversation. All right? I was having a hard time understanding words that he was saying. He'd be like, because I knew that he asked me what I did, and I told him that I was a pastor, and he's like, oh, man, I can't. Wouldn't you like me? It's like, I don't know if he likes pastors or not, but it doesn't, it doesn't sound like he does. That was mo most of our conversation just sounded like that, okay? And so, um, and I'm committed at this. It, like, at this point, I'm like, I have neighbors. I am going to love this guy like crazy. Like, he's going to love us. He did not love us. Okay, um, and Dave would at random times, typically when he was either incredibly drunk or incredibly stoned, his music, like he would crank his music, and I don't know what kind of system this dude had in his house. I mentioned that we lived in the country, right? So like the houses are not on top of each other. He could crank that thing to the point where it would rattle the picture frames on our walls inside our house in winter when both of our house's windows were closed, okay? 
Unbelievable. And that would happen at completely random times. Noon, 3 a.m., 6 a.m., 1 a.m. Like, it, it didn't matter. And at first, when this started to happen, I was like, all right, I'm not going to ruin this relationship right away. I'm going like, I'm I'm to have a direct conversation with him. So I would go to his house, beat on his door, and I'd be like, hey, man, uh, can we turn the music down? And he'd always be like, ah, man, what is that? And he'd turn the music down, and that would, it would stay that way for an hour, and then he'd turn, back, turn it back up or whatever else. And after, I don't know, 9, 10, 11 times of doing that, um, and I, I wasn't even sure he could remember these conversations later. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, you guys. This could be so long of a story. I'm going to speed it up. After so many times of doing this, I sent him a letter. And in the letter, it basically said, hey, dude, I want to be a good neighbor. I don't want to call the police. I don't have any other choice. Okay? So from this point on, if, you're, if your stuff is that loud, we have little kids. This just isn't working out. Um, and I also included in this letter because uh, there's tons of drug paraphernalia and all kinds of stuff, you know, laying around his house. I was like, and if the cop, I know that if the cops come to your door the same way that I have, that you're going to have other issues. So I'm just giving you a heads up. If your music is loud, I'm not beating on your door anymore, okay? My relationship between Dave and I changed on that day, okay? And he went from kind of being indifferent that we existed to paying very close attention that we existed. And he would do anything okay, to cause grief to our family at that point. If my little kids, ages like three and four, were out in the yard playing, boom, his windows would be open, stereo with the nastiest, like dropping the F-bomb, every other word, music would be cranked out of his house, and it would be like, here we go. Because the problem is we also lived out in the country, so if you call the cops, it would take them like 45 minutes to come and show up, and they're not super happy about coming for a noise complaint. So this launches into... This guy mowing his yard, like not even mowing his yard, he would just mow the border between our two yards at like midnight. (laughs) Not lying. This is the kind of human being that he was. It was just like anything antagonistic. I actually found out later that he had a war with the other neighbor that was next to me where like they would shoot fireworks back and forth at each other's houses. (laughs) Like, you guys, it was... And I need you to understand like with two little kids and the dream that I had of enjoying our yard and the space that we were in, he had a Rottweiler that he would like just let out when our kids were out. And this thing was super temperamental. I mean, you could tell that it had been beaten. And so that like it, sometimes it would be super happy to see you and sometimes it would be super nervous. And it's like, so this was just constant for us, for me. And if you'd asked me during that pe- period of my life who my enemy was, his name right there would be on my head. And you guys, I'm creative, and like anger is sort of a core issue of mine, and so I had all kinds of ideas. Like I had (laughs) ideas, like some of them were legal ideas that I could do to get him back for some of this stuff. And the Holy Spirit would be like, hey, this dude's hard to love, but you're going to love him, even if there's no good answer right now as to how you do that even if some of these things are hard, even if some of these things are, are, are abrupt, like me having hard conversations with him again and again and again. There were, I, God convicted me that I needed to spend more time praying for this man than I did complaining about him or obsessing about him. And so his music would come on, like when our kids would get out in the yard and the F-bombs would start flying from his windows and I'd call our kids in and I would go sit on my back stoop on our, on our stairs back there and I would just pray for this dude's soul, all right, for long periods of time. 
And some of that was just because of the inner, inward battle that was going on on me. Do you know why? Because for me, I was here and he was here and God needed to do some work on my heart to remind me who that man was. Broken, fractured, mean, yeah, but still bore the image of God and God cared about him. And so there's a conviction to me in that season of my life where God was like, you don't have the freedom to write him off. I haven't written him off. And maybe you're gonna be a part of his redemption story. I don't have a beautiful redemption story to tell you with him. I can tell you that part of that story ends with a, <laughs> with a SWAT team kicking his door in, throwing a concussion grenade into his living room and taking him out hogtied and him doing at least 11 years in prison. But that's a longer part of the story, okay? Um, yeah. I told you it's a good one. <clears throat> so, let's ask this question. How did Jesus model this for us? Because if this is what he's preaching, the Imago Dei, if he's confronting this religious Pharisee and he's saying, hey, what, did Jesus put his money where his mouth is? I find this story, this come, the story I wanna read you right now, so beautiful. Because it's a story that happened when Jesus needed to go from Jerusalem to Galilee. Do you remember our map? That means he has to walk around Samaria but he doesn't. He walks straight through the middle of it. Straight through the middle of it. And we find this. Eventually, he, being Jesus, came, came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long well, sat wearily beside the well about noontime, hottest part of the day. He's out. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? And Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you're speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. Now, I'm going to skip part of this story because she begins to ask some religious questions of Jesus and they start talking about where, you know, the, the differences between Jews and Samaritans and where they worship and all these other things. But when we get down closer to the end of the story, the woman says, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus leans in and says, I am the Messiah. You know what's crazy about this? He hasn't told anybody this yet. She's the first one that Jesus says those words to. Do you want to know something interesting about her? I already told you that Jews and Samaritans didn't get along. And so they already had that racial divide that you see here, okay? But women in this culture were not held in esteem. As a matter of fact, Jewish men during this time are known to have prayed every morning. Part of their morning prayer was, thank you, God, that you did not create me as a woman. Ladies in the room, that's what culture looked like in the culture that we're talking about here. So men and women publicly didn't talk like this. Third thing I want you to notice about this woman is that she's coming to this place alone at noon. And we learn from this story that she has had at least five husbands, okay? Now, scholars think she's probably a prostitute, 
But at the very least, she is a complete and utter social outcast. All the other women in town were here in the morning together, and she's coming at noon to avoid everyone else. So Jesus walks up to this well of this Samaritan woman who's a complete and utter outcast, possibly a prostitute, has a conversation with her, and she is the one that he chooses to tell for the very first time, I am the promised Messiah the Jews have been waiting for. Isn't that incredible that Jesus absolutely put his money where his mouth is? The Imago Dei, this idea, he recognizes that this woman is absolutely 100% made in the image of his heavenly Father. I have to ask you again tonight, who are you free to hate? Who have you given yourself permission to look down on? Who have you held unforgiveness in your heart? You guys, I'm not asking you to solve that problem in an instant. You may have walked through abuse as a child and you're like, Ben, I can't give that up. Listen, that's a journey, but it's a journey that Jesus will take you on. What I want to flow through your mind as you're walking around your campus this week and you see people walking around, eyes on their phones, earbuds in, staring off in the distance, I want you to be thinking, Imago Dei, Imago Dei, Imago Dei my goodness, made in the image of God. God, how, mu- how your heart must break over that girl. God, how your heart must break over that guy. Don't let your heart get calloused, even if you have a right to be. It's something that God doesn't want you to live in for your sake. That's what it means when the question is asked of Jesus, who is my neighbor? That's the answer. Everyone around you, made in the image of God, bearing the likeness of your Father. Now, next week, because I think the follow-up question to that immediately is, how in the world do I do that? (laughs) If this is who God is in terms of how he loves every person around me, how do I show love in a world that's so broken? That's what we talk about next week. But you guys, when we see this in other people, when, to jump back to last week, when I understand that I'm loved and I have received the love of God, when I choose to give that back to him and therefore I have something to give you, I'm connected to my purpose in this world. No more drifting, no more meaningless presence. I know why God put me on this planet. And when other people see that in us as a group, they'll take notice, you guys. They'll take notice, I promise. Jesus said it this way, and I'm gonna give John the last word here. So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. And how we see and love each other will show this campus if we really believe what we think we believe. Let's pray. Father, this is a tall task and it's not one we can get at on our own. So those places in our hearts that we've held unforgiveness, Jesus, I pray that you'd slowly begin to pry those things open. Take our pain and turn it to compassion. Thank you for your example with that Samaritan woman, Jesus, asking for her help, revealing to her that, that you were the Messiah. What a beautiful picture of practicing what you preach. Drive the idea of Imago Dei into our hearts this week, Christ. In 
your name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Find out more about Encounter and ways to get involved at isuencounter.org.